Well, once again, good morning, and if you're tuning in late, welcome to 3ABN's 2013 Spring Camp Meeting. We are coming to you live from Thompsonville, Illinois, and it's just a joy to be here. I have to tell you, first and foremost, that I love you. I may not have even met you, but and, and this is no credit to me. This is something that, before I speak, I pray and I ask the Lord to fill my heart with love for my brothers and sisters. And that's the only way we can love one another as we love ourselves is to open our heart up and let God to do an action in us. Is that not correct? Amen. Well, this morning, as I said, we're going to be speaking on the joy of investigative judgment. And this lesson, I'm just going to tell you, I did a study all the way through on judgment. Uh, a couple of days ago, was studying this out and thought I knew which direction I was going in, and, and then it got switched up. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you a pledge. Normally, I come out here, and I know I've got X amount of time to get something done, and I just go for it, 90 miles an hour. Today, we're going to slow down, because I want you to look in the scriptures with me. And because I have part one and part two that will be finished up tomorrow afternoon, then we're just going to go till we run out of time today, and then whatever we don't finish, we'll do tomorrow. And I may not get to present everything on all the judgments, but I hope, and my prayer is this, that when we conclude with these two presentations, that the investigative judgment will bring, be something that brings joy to your heart rather than dread. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I just come before you to surrender right now. Father, this is something I believe that you have led in the preparation. And I ask, Father, that you will now anoint my lips, help me to get out of the way. And I pray you'll send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And Father, I pray that you will give us all ears to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. Help me, Lord, to make this message clear by the power of your Spirit. Father, we are so grateful for your gifts of grace. We are so grateful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for your Holy Spirit and your Word. And now, Lord, we dedicate this time to you to bring glory to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. What I'd like to do is, why don't you open up your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Because in the opening book of the Bible, there is a pattern of God's behavior that is established. And I want to show you several examples and see if we can identify what this behavior is. Let's look at Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 7. This is after Adam and Eve had fallen from grace. They had disobeyed God, eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, the Shekinah glory, the covering, God's light covering, had gone away from them, and they found themselves naked in their shame. And you know what? We're all naked before the Lord. 
I mean, our sin just makes us naked before the Lord, doesn't it? Until we get the robe of righteousness. So, after their disobedience, they are hiding from God's presence. And let's look at, actually, we're going to begin in verse 9. Genesis 3 and verse 9. And the Lord called to Adam, and he said to him, Where are you? Do you think God knew where Adam was? So he said, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And then God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, oh, it's that woman you gave me to be with me. She's the one that gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, oh, it's that serpent who deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord is asking, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Did God know the answers to these questions? And then he says, what is this you have done? Why is God coming to them with these questions? He is a righteous judge and a loving creator he's testing their hearts and he knew the answers before he asked and what does God do he judges the sin and he redeems the sinners he curses the serpent he curses the ground but for Adam and Eve he makes a sacrifice of a lamb so that their nakedness and the shame of their nakedness may be covered now, let's look at a second example. Turn to Genesis 4. We're going to try to figure out what is this pattern of God's behavior. Genesis 4, verse 9. This is the story of Cain and Abel. They both brought offerings to the Lord. They knew about the sacrificial system. Abel brings the offering that God asks for. The offering of blood. Cain, he thinks, no, I'll worship God in my own way. He brings an offering of, from the ground, of something that he has harvested. And the Lord knows that Cain has murdered Abel, his righteous brother, because he was angry that God accepted Cain's sacrifice, but God rejected his. So the Lord says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What is God doing here? He presents the true nature of Cain's sins to him in a loving attempt to get Cain to repent and turn back to him. But unlike his parents who were hiding in shame of their sin, Cain has no remorse. And so then God makes a judgment and the curse for the first time of God falls upon a man. Now let's look at Genesis 18. And we're going to begin with verse 20. Genesis 18 and verse 20. So we see that God is coming with questions to these people. Now this is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
We'll begin Genesis 18 and verse 20. The Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. What is God coming down to do? To investigate. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Oh, Abraham knew the answer to that. A righteous God will not destroy the righteous. But he says, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? What does God say? Of course not. I will spare it. I won't destroy it if there's 50 righteous. Of course, then uh, he goes on, Abraham, and he says, well, what if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? And, and then he comes down and says, what if there's 10? And God says, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10 righteous. And verse 20, or 33 says, so the Lord went his way as soon as he'd finished speaking with Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. We see here that a righteous God came down to investigate the sin and the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what is the result? He doesn't find ten righteous people. But what does he do with righteous Lot and those who will follow him out? He saves them. He redeems the righteous, but he destroys the wicked. Now, we're going to stop with these three examples, but what are these examples of? Where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? Where is your brother? Let me see if I can go down and investigate and find even ten righteous. What are these examples of? The investigative judgment of God. A pattern is established right in the first book of the Bible. And it continues. Boy, just, just read Revelation. It continues all the way to the end of the Bible. That God investigates the sins of his people. And it results, God's investigation results in redemption for the righteous. Of course, it's followed by condemnation for those who are rebellious and who are wicked. And it is then followed by an executive judgment that carries out the destruction of the wicked. But we see this pattern repeated again and again. The investigative judgment of God, we're going to look in a moment at how he had this investigative judgment of his new covenant, our old covenant people, ancient Israel. But God also has an investigative judgment for his new covenant people. And I am here to assert that it absolutely must take place before the advent of Jesus Christ, before his second coming. It is a pre-advent investigative judgment. And someone who's watching might say, how can you know that for certain? I'm just going to give you one reference. There's many. 
But let's look, turn to Revelation chapter 22. As the time of the end is drawing to a close, Jesus has sent his angel to give John the revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling of Jesus. And when we read Revelation, we should see Jesus on every page. In every symbol, it's all coming to that culmination of what Christ did for us as Redeemer. And the plan of salvation by grace. But Revelation 22, the last book of the Bible. The angel stands up and says, He who is unjust... Let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. What does this mean? It's the end of probation. This is where probation ends. And it's right before Jesus comes. Because now Jesus says in verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. If Jesus is bringing his reward with him, if he is coming down to resurrect all of the righteous in that first resurrection, there has to be a judgment, an investigative judgment that has already taken place in heaven. It's not that Jesus is in the air and going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. It's not that when he's coming, he's saying to his angels, okay, gather this one, this one, this one. No, the ones who are alive already have the mark of God on their forehead, right? So there is this pre-advent investigative judgment that happens in heaven. And then Christ comes to execute it. Revelation 14, 7, you all are familiar with this. This is the first angel's message of the three angels' message. And I have to tell you something funny. Recently, one of the local people here, and, and I confess, before I started watching 3ABN, if somebody had said three angels' messages to me, it wouldn't have made a lick of sense. See, I grew up in the Church of Christ. We weren't even allowed to study the book of Revelation. And then, as I studied my way out of that, there's many things the Lord taught me, but boy, I was clueless when it came to prophecy because I didn't understand that Daniel unlocked Revelation. So if someone had said something about the three angels' message, yes, I'd read Revelation several times, but it didn't stand out to me. I didn't understand it. And one of the locals recently said, yeah, Danny and his two brothers started that, and it's pretty... Um, prideful that they would call themselves the three angels. They didn't realize that the three angels came from Revelation chapter 14. But here is when we know there's this investigative judgment is beginning in Revelation. The first angel comes and he says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Now he's not talking about a single hour. It's a time span. 
In other words, God's judgment begins now. And then he goes on to say, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. You know, the Hebrew term, the phrase worship him, means to have a trembling reverence for God. A reverence that in Hebrew understanding was expressed with loving obedience. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the, the verse that when people say to me, and sometimes people do, you know, I teach a lot about grace. But people will say, no, you're teaching grace plus works. No, I'm not. Listen, we're saved by grace alone. It isn't grace plus works. But when we are saved by grace, when the Holy Spirit is residing in us, we will be anxious to please our Heavenly Father. We will love Him. We will walk in obedience to His commandments. And 1 John 2, 3 through 4, this is an easy one to remember. 1 John 2, 3, 4. That's so easy to remember. And when people will say, no, you know, you insist on obedience. It's not I who insists on obedience. It's God. And here's what John wrote in 1 John 2. He says, now by this we know that we know him. What did Jesus say in John 17, 3? He says, oh, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you have sent. Know you in an intimate way, a personal way. And he says, here, John saying, now this is how we know that we know him. If, if we keep his commandments. And he who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. Now we're continuing on in verse 5 here. And it says, by this we know that we are in him, in Christ. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Oh, are you in Christ? then God is calling you to a life of sanctification, which is just a big word that is synonymous with holiness, which is a word that scares some people. But they mean exactly the same thing. Holiness and sanctification are synonymous. They're equal terms. And they both simply mean to be separated from sin. Because God sent Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. To create in us a new heart. That we might be born again as new creatures. And yes, we may have this propensity towards sin. But oh, he is faithful and just. When we for ask for forgiveness, he's faithful and just. To, to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Amen. So... Basically, what we're seeing is that an, an investigative judgment must be made to see who is fitted for heaven and who is not. There are professed believers who will have no part in obedience. There are some people who think that all they have to do is come down front once at an altar call 
And that's it. Now they can go live like the devil because they're saved by grace. Oh, what a dangerous lie, a dangerous deception of Satan. But what has to be done is to see, okay, who's wheat, who's tares, who's the sheep, who's the goats. And then Christ will return for his people and separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. There are phases of the final judgment of God. And we have entered the first phase of God's final judgment. Let me, I studied this out, and I hope we'll have time to look at all of these phases tomorrow. We may not. We're just going to let the Lord lead in this. But let me just tell them to you very quickly what I have identified is five phases to God's final judgment. The first phase is the pre-advent investigative judgment, which began, and we'll prove in a moment, in 1844. And this is a judgment in which God the Father is the judge. The second phase is the enforcement of the heavenly court's judgment, the pre-investigative judgment, when Christ returns to the earth. So it is after the first resurrection that this is executed and the wicked are destroyed by the breath of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. The third phase of God's final judgment takes place during the millennium. It is a deliberative phase. The judges are the saints of God. This is when the books are opened. And we are not judging people and fallen angels. We're not judging the wicked and fallen angels to determine whether they're saved or not. Because let me tell you something. The seal, the fate of all people is sealed during the investigative judgment. If you miss this first part, you're out. What we're investigating at this point is to understand God's righteous judgment. To see there, there's going to be people there that we're going, why are you here? And there's going to be people there who you're saying, God, why isn't my mother here? My precious little saintly mother? Shouldn't she be here? And God is going to open the books and let us see the records so that we will be totally satisfied and recognize that by the end of that thousand year millennium, we will recognize that God is truly righteous and that all of his decisions have been correct. Then after that deliberative judgment, then's when the New Jerusalem comes down, there's the final battle, then there is the great white throne judgment. Now Jesus is the judge, and this is the judge of the wicked. This is the time when all will stand up, all of the wicked have been resurrected in the second resurrection, and they will all be standing before the Lord and finally see it. They will kneel down and every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the fifth phase is the implementation of the executive judgment. This will be the execution of the sentence. When God destroys the earth, makes it a lake of fire, 
and then afterwards recreates the earth. But now, I've taken a long time just to set this up. Let's get into the pre-advent investigative judgment. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We see in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 2, 7 and 8, gives us the history of the great powers of the world uh, from the beginning of Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, then Rome, then the Little Horn, and it gives us the history right up to the time of the Second Advent, the time of the end. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to begin with verse 9 because here is where the investigative judgment is prophesied. And Daniel writes, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days, who's the ancient of days? This is God the Father. We'll prove that in just a moment. We'll see it's the Father. He was seated. What does it mean to be seated? He was seated as judge. So God the Father is the judge. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. These are the heavenly beings, the heavenly intelligences. So this investigative judgment takes place in heaven in the courts of heaven, in the presence of heavenly beings. It says, the court was seated and the books were opened. Anytime in the Bible that it is speaking of books, it's always referring to God's people. There's the book of life, the book of remembrance. These are books in which deeds are recorded. And then he says, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, speaking of the little horn, was speaking. And I watched till the beast, this government, was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, speaking of all of the rest of these powers, these government powers, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions. He's seen God now seated. And behold, one like the Son of Man, who is this? Jesus Christ, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel here is prophesying of an investigative judgment that takes place in heaven. When the books are opened, and we're going to see that this is a time when God is judging his new covenant people. But there's joy in judgment. Remember that. Let's look now at Daniel 20. Uh, or Chapter 7 and verse 21. He continues. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So this is that persecuting power that reigned from 538 to 1798 AD. So we know there's this period of time 
And after this war, the judgment is going to take place. Because he says, this war that was going on from 538 to 1798, he's watching it in vision. The little horn is prevailing against the people until the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made, what? Against his people? No, what does the scripture say? And a judgment was made in favor of the saints. Now that should strike a note of joy in your heart. See, what Daniel's doing here, we're going to see, he repeats and enlarge in this pattern of recapitulation. He will repeat and enlarge this vision. But he says, a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So right here, there's a, a hint here. We see that this investigative judgment that he was speaking of in the earlier verses, and now he's repeating this. It comes after the war of the little horn. And we know by history, and we'll look at that in a minute, that that ended in 1798. So the investigative judgment had to come between 1798 and before the saints possessed the kingdom at the second coming. So we've already got it kind of nailed down there. Now turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 13. Now Daniel writes and he says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be? How long is this war, this little horn power going to reign is what he's actually asking here. He says, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? You know, Daniel's having a lot of problems with this. He's inquiring about the trampling down of the daily priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, of the burnt offerings, the showbread, the lamp that was always lighted, the continual burning incense, the perpetual fire on the altar of the sacrifice. And he's saying, how long, O oh Lord? Now, here is the key scripture. Verse 14 of Daniel 8. And he said to me, the angel who is explaining the vision to, to Daniel, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The Amplified adds and restored because the verb here expresses the idea of restoration of the order. So this key verse here is saying this first part of the vision that you see before God is seated and the books are opened, it's going to last 2,300 days. Now, we see in verse 13 the daily priestly service, which the little horn attacks. But in verse 14, we see the yearly service of the high priest, the cleansing of the sanctuary. And when... The, when the 2300 day prophecy ends, 
the the investigative judgment and the cleansing of the sanctuary begins. Once a year, the high priest, and he alone, entered into the most holy place to make atonement for the people, to cleanse the sanctuary. This was the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. And on this day of judgment, it was also called a day of judgment, he made the atonement according to the sacrificial laws of Leviticus 16. Now, get this point though. In this earthly scene of the sanctuary and the day of atonement, the judgment centered around God's people alone. Only God's people were judged on that day. Non-Israelites were not included in this group. So what happened on behalf of the congregation, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled the atoning blood of the authorized sacrifices on the mercy seat, first for himself and then for the collective errors and sins of ignorance of the nation. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7. You know, the services of this most sacred of all ceremonial days, what it represented was cleansing from sin and reconciliation to God through the atonement of blood. So Hebrews 9 and verse 7. He says, but into the second part, speaking of the second part of the sanctuary, there was the first part was the holy place. The second part was the most holy place. The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So he goes in to cleanse everything from sin and that blood reconciles people to God. Remember, it's only God's people. This was an occasion of nationwide Solemnity. There was a solemn heart, a sober heart, if you will, during this time because people wanted to make sure it was a time of reflection. Am I in the Lord? Am I in the will of the Lord? But it ended for the penitent, for those who were trusting in God, who had confessed their sins. It ended with joy. The Day of Atonement, yes, it wasn't, I mean, it was, it was something where people were very serious. But oh, it ended with joy. Because in God's covenant with ancient Israel, by grace, by grace, the penitent received complete forgiveness and vindication and a fresh start in life with God. But for the rebellious Israelites who would not follow God's law, who refused to humble themselves and remain faithful to God, the day ended in condemnation and even death. But this earthly day of atonement was nothing more than a type or a shadow of what is going to take place in heaven on the true day of atonement in the true sanctuary of God. 
It pointed to Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. The prophetic vision of Daniel 7 and 8 describes the investigative judgment and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. And someone said to me just not long ago, I don't believe there is a sanctuary in heaven. And I had to say, hmm, have you read the Bible? I want you, while we're there in Hebrews, let's look at Hebrews chapter 8. Because it's important we establish where is this sanctuary. Here Daniel is prophesying in chapter 7 and 8 about this investigative judgment where the Ancient of Days will be seated and he's talking about the 2300 days is the end time. The time of the end begins after that when this starts happening. It takes place in front of all these heavenly intelligences and there's going to be a cleansing of the sanctuary. Which sanctuary is he talking about? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 because it identifies the sanctuary of God in heaven. And the writer says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Where? In the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. This is a true tabernacle of God up in heaven. Man didn't have any part in, in erecting it. And he says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices... Therefore, it is necessary that this one, capital O, Jesus Christ, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. The priest who served on earth, it was a copy and a shadow of the true sanctuary. Sanctuary. And he says, as Moses was divinely instructed when he uh, was told about to make the tabernacle, for God had said to him, see that you make all things on earth, basically, according to the pattern shown you on the mountain, the pattern of the true sanctuary. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, again, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens, everything about the sanctuary was just a symbolic copy of what was up in heaven, that it should be purified with these, but the heavenly things with themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places. What does he mean by holy places? the holy place and the most holy place. He has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
You see, Christ, the atonement of Christ has two stages. First was at the cross, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, by which we subjectively receive personal daily forgiveness when we confess our sins and repent. But the second stage of the atonement is taking place. Christ's work didn't finish at the cross. He is now our high priest, entered into the true sanctuary of God, where he's carrying on a priestly ministry. And there in the heavenly sec- uh, sanctuary as our high priest, when he enters into the most holy place, he will apply this true sacrificial blood, his own, by which all record of sins is blotted out during the pre-Adventist investigative judgment. And this should cause us to celebrate. Because atonement for sin can only be made by the blood of Jesus Christ. Atonement is grace in action. It's reconciliation through the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Redemption of sin through his heavenly ministry. The atonement is the good news of the gospel. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God. Oh no, our selfish nature can't even love God the way we're supposed to, lest we open up our heart and let God fill our heart with the love of the Holy Spirit. He says it's not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Very, very close to atonement. Atonement is to... uh, apply and cover over propitiation is the sin covering he is the propitiation for our sins no one can stand before God with a record of good acts for salvation no one Isaiah 40 um, Isaiah 64 and verse 6 says that all of our righteousnesses is filthy rags before the Lord It doesn't matter, you know, Shelly Quinn can be the best little girl, well, not little at six feet tall, but the best girl that she can possibly be. It doesn't matter because when I get into the brilliance of the light of God, my sin-stained garment would show You know, have you ever, especially if you're washing something white and you're in your laundry room and you think, oh yeah, that looks really good. And then you get it out in the sunlight and you see there's still a spot. That's the way it is. There's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves. Our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. When he gives us the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ, of his perfection, Salvation is a gift. It is not grace plus works. Oh, Lord, help us to understand that. Help us to understand that. But we're going to look at the fact that works 
is proof of our profession of faith. We'll look at that probably tomorrow. But remember this, we can only stand in the investigative judgment. We can only stand in the righteousness of Christ for salvation. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And we will be judged by our works only as proof of our profession. Works that are accomplished by grace. For it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That's what Paul wrote the Philippians in 2.13. But we've got to remember to be doers of the word and not hearers only, as James says, deceiving ourselves. So why are... The 2300, why is the 2300 day prophecy so important? Because there's no other time prophecy in the Bible that is given to reach the time of the end that begins the second, or the investigative judgment before the second coming of Jesus. It begins that 2300 days with the activity of the ram, Medo-Persia, goes on to Greece, Rome, uh, Italy, the little horn, I mean Rome and the little horn power, and it continues till the sanctuary is cleansed. Now we know that the timing of the divine judgment described in Daniel 8:14 comes after the war of the little horn that ended in 1798. And by the records of, of Earth's history, is how we determine that period of persecuting power from 538 to 1798. So the investigative judgment comes after that, but it comes before the saints of the Most High receive the eternal kingdom at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Daniel 8, 11, and 12 refers in six different occasions by reference and one by inference, the seventh by inference, about the time of the end. Saying that this investigative judgment is the time of the end. And tomorrow, when you come back, I hope you'll all be here for, I think it's 2.30 tomorrow. We're going to... Uh, I won't be in the morning slot tomorrow, but we're going to take a look at this and we will see how the 70 weeks are lopped off. That first 70 weeks was a probationary period and an investigative judgment for the, for that, in, in, in prophecy, that's 490 years of investigative judgment and probationary period for God's people of the old covenant. And so far, right now, we've only been less than 170 years since 1844 in this investigative judgment for his new covenant people. But the thing is, we don't have a prophetic time period. We know this is the time of the end, and the events will be rapid. So we don't have time to waste. But what we know is that the conclusion of the 2300 days begins the time of the end and it brings us to the last church age of revelation 
the church age of the Laodicean church. You know what Laodicea, Laodicea means? It means a judging of the people. That's what Laodicea means. And when this judgment begins, we know that the time of the end is at hand. And if we can identify in Scripture when the 2300 days begin, we can also identify the time of their ending and the beginning of this cleansing of the sanctuary that Daniel 7 talks about the investigative judgment and Daniel 8 talks about the 2300 days. You have yet to see. I hope you've gotten a little glimpse of the joy of investigative judgment because the ancient of days comes and he makes judgment in favor of his people. See, if you are in Christ, you have no reason to fear the investigative judgment. You have assurance of salvation. And you will only stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And just as the Day of Atonement for ancient Israel, yes, they were sober-minded, they were reflective, checking themselves to see that they were in God, making certain that they had confessed and repented of their sins. But just as that day ended in joy for God's faithful people, for the penitent, so will the investigative judgment of God in for us. So we encourage you to tune in again tomorrow. Our time's all gone. It went quickly, but thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.